today on Ag News Daily. Basically, you need to prove to the FAA, hey, my drone has capabilities to fly and handle itself safely, even when I'm not directly seeing it as a pilot. Listeners, welcome back to June 20th, 2023, Tuesday's edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. And we've got a hot one for you today, right, Delaney? It was a hot one yesterday too, Tanner. Yeah, it was. We've got excessive heat warnings and heat advisories in effect for our friends in Oklahoma and Texas. It seems like that portion of the country just can't catch a break. Either they're too dry or they get too much rain and now they're getting too much heat. Temperatures in southern Oklahoma and northern Texas are expected to be 110 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit today. That obviously makes being outside and working in the outdoors uh, very dangerous. There's still low air quality concerns for parts of Minnesota as the wildfires in Canada continue to send uh, issues down here for air quality. Ground level ozone is expected to be high during the afternoon on Tuesday into Wednesday across southeastern Minnesota, which may push into Iowa where we are at. But Delaney, We've got a storm to watch out in the Atlantic. The tropical storm Brett has formed in the central Atlantic Ocean and might become a hurricane tomorrow. The National Hurricane Center said that uh, it is one that they're going to continue to watch. They're urging people in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands to closely monitor this forecast and have hurricane plans in place as they will continue to track that storm. So heat and some powerful systems moving through here, Delaney. Yeah, and right along that same vein, Tanner, according to Weather Trends 360, the second full week of June 2023, ending June 17th, was another drier than normal week for the Corn Belt. According to Weather Trends, this was the eighth driest second full week of June in 30 plus years for the Corn Belt. The exception was in the far eastern reaches of the region, mainly Ohio, that saw several days of showers and storms and I know we saw some rain here across the central swath of Iowa and a few other places to the east of us here, but definitely starting to see pockets of rainfall, Tanner, all in all. And newly released drought outlooks predict that dry conditions, at least here in Iowa, will continue to worsen through the end of June, but the drought will ease in western Iowa in the following months. This is according to the Federal Climate Prediction Center, and they've recently changed their views about what the future holds for the state's ongoing drought, which in places has been in effect for about the past three years, Tanner. Yeah, that's uh, certainly something I think a lot of our listeners have mentioned to us, or you've seen their pictures on Twitter and other social media platforms that they could use some of the relief as you discussed. Summit Pipeline is getting their hearing sooner than expected. Final permit hearing to consider the Summit Carbon Solutions carbon dioxide pipeline will start two months earlier than originally expected. The schedule was set on Friday by the Iowa Utilities Board. The former chairperson was adamant in March that the week-long evidentiary hearing would start in October for Summit's nearly 680 miles of pipeline. Instead, the hearing begins in August. 
This project is one of three that we've reported on many times here on the podcast. Summit has sought to expedite their approval process while the other two projects are looking to delay theirs until next year. So we'll continue to keep an eye on this, but it looks like that project will get its hearing sooner than expected. Well, Tanner, the U.S. and China have reportedly made progress and agreed to stabilize the relationship, but no major breakthroughs or a path to resolving ongoing issues were outlined at the end of a meeting between Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Chinese President Xi Jinping. The two men tried to meet to repair the deteriorating relationship between Washington and China. And the visit, which is the first by a senior U.S. official since Biden has taken office, follows lower-level engagements and ongoing hostilities. Speaking at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing after the two days of meetings, Blinken said that all meetings with top officials in China were constructive and reiterated that competition between the U.S. and China should not veer into conflict. Ahead of this trip, officials said that Blinken would discuss the importance of responsibly managing the U.S.-China relationship to address bilateral concerns, technology concerns, and also the focus of Taiwan. As Blinken said, the U.S. held a one-China policy and does not support Taiwanese independence, but is concerned about the human rights act. Act, uh, human rights side of the Chinese provocations against the Taiwanese Strait. So that was going on here a lot and the last week into the weekend as we look at heading into a fresh week this week, Tanner. Hopefully we see something coming out of that meeting more than just nice, nice remarks from both sides. Yeah, that's a, a good way of putting that. Nice remarks. Um, yes, yeah, some good real news would be uh, fun to report on. Uh, we got an update on the largest RNG producer now in North America. That is a failed cellulosic Illinois plant. So we, Delaney, are very familiar with the failed DuPont plant in Nevada, Iowa. But the German company Verbio gave DTN access to its facility and now have some announcements to make. They are interested in continuing to use uh, corn stover to create a cellulosic renewable natural gas. So no longer focusing on the ethanol. We knew that was the purpose of the project when Verbio took over in 2018, but they've announced that they are at full capacity for production. Their chief competitors right now are dairies and landfills, but this is the largest scale plant in the United States. Verbio has four similar plants in Germany. The German-owned company says that this United States location is serial number number one for North America. However, they have bought South Bend Ethanol in Indiana and have announced their $230 million upgrade for that plant to create a second one in the United States. The RNG, the renewable natural gas coming from Iowa, will be 2.8 billion cubic feet in Indiana uh, will also create 85 million gallons of ethanol on top of their RNG production. So Verbio is continuing to look through the United States for other failing ethanol plants that they can take over and use their same script and blueprint for. Verbio doesn't clean cornfields for residue. They take about a third 
to a half of the stocks that are in that field and replace it with a carbon product that is a byproduct of creating the natural gas. So it's interesting to continue to watch. But right now, if you look at the capacity coming out of the Nevada, Iowa plant, they can create potentially enough power through natural gas for over 13,000 homes and is definitely a focus on renewable energy grants and those products and programs that are available through the government. So good to see here that Verbio has turned Nevada's location into a producing location, finally up, fully running to status, and they're looking to expand into Indiana. Well, Tina, the final piece of news I have for today, aside from news, is a headline that came out late last week as the U.S. Department of Agriculture has launched a multi-step effort to strengthen standards used for labels on things such as grass-fed, free-range, and raised without antibiotics. The backstory here is that after receiving a lot of petitions, comments, and letters from various industry stakeholders asking the agency to re-evaluate the oversight of these animal raising claims, they've decided to look more in-depth into it. The Food Safety and Inspection Service entity of the USDA was the entity that specifically received quite a few of these requests to finally take a look at it. And therefore, following that, the USDA announced last week the launch of an effort to put a little more effort into figuring out these voluntary marketing claims, such as grass-fed, free-range, and raised with antibiotics, and how they're actually going to go about defining each of those labels. Currently, Tanner, do you want to guess how a producer or whomever, grocer, etc., can get one of these labels? What would you think would be required? Oh, uh, I assume some type of a license and proof of, yikes, I, I don't know. Is it an application process that takes weeks? Well, you know, you'd think that there would be maybe some sort of inspection to verify that if they are grass fed, that is indeed what they are being fed. But according to this news story on the USDA's website, all a person has to do is simply fill out some paperwork online and no inspection is needed. So that is one of the areas that uh, it sounds like FSIS is going to be looking at. But of course, labor and manpower to actually do some of those inspections is going to be quite complicated. So I'm not sure if that's going to be the answer, but they're at least acknowledging that this issue does need to be addressed, Tanner. Wow. Yeah, I would uh, certainly say so. I've got just a little hodgepodge of headlines here to hit before we jump into markets today. Kloss has now joined John Deere, Kubota, CNH, and Agco with an MOU with the American Farm Bureau Federation. President Zippy Duval was pleased to announce they had another MOU with large manufacturer on behalf of farmers. It's an interesting story. We are searching right now for a submersible vessel that is uh, was on a trip to view the Titanic wreckage. The massive search operation is now taking a space as large as Connecticut overnight to try and find between 70 and uh, try to find a f- vessel that only has 70 to 96 hours of life support. The Titanic wreckage sits at the bottom of the ocean, nearly 13,000 feet below the surface southeast of Newfoundland, Canada, and we will continue to get updates on that. There uh, supposedly are some very notable individuals that are on this vessel, 
it's quite interesting too, as you dive deeper into that topic, the number of disclosures and contracts and everything that needs to be signed. Uh, but the search area is quite large. Moscow also launched another massive air attack on Kiev using Iranian-made drones. They're continuing to push, obviously, on the capital city in Ukraine using those drones. A fire has erupted on key infrastructure on the western side of the battlefront, and Russia's major focus remains the eastern front. But now we see support moving to the southern lines as well. However, Ukrainian President Zelensky says that Ukraine has not lost any of their positions and so far only gained new ones while maintaining existing ones. So that's the last of the headlines I've got today. Delaney, what kind of fireworks do we see in the markets this morning? Well, that's a good way to put it. Tanner, because of course, yet markets were closed yesterday. So we've had a little bit of bubbling excitement here. We did see corn gap higher open in the overnights last night with December corn getting through the $6 mark, but it has started to fade since last night's trade as it started to realize that some rains happened over the weekend with some decent coverage across a little bit of the Corn Belt, especially in states such as Iowa. Soybeans also opened strong last night after a couple of three-day weekend here along with corn, but since then we've also seen soybeans pull back as well. Here as we head into the opening session, July corn added two cents in the overnight. will open at 642 and a quarter. D snow crop corn down three quarters of a cent at 596 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the July contract added five cents to close at 1471 and a half is where we'll see things open this morning. No new crop beans gave up any early profits down four cents heading into the open at 1338 and a quarter. July winter wheat down seven and a half cents in the overnight at 834 and a half. And a quick refresher at where livestock closed late last week. August live cattle added 65 cents. We'll open the trading session this week at $1.7172. August feeder cattle will open at 234.92 and a half for the week. And July lean hogs will open this week at 92.85. Tanner, we're talking drones for today's Tech Tuesday conversation, which isn't a topic we've talked about in quite some time. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, folks, there has been a lot of muddy waters around the topic of drones and drone regulation. So we're chatting today for our Tech Tuesday conversation with Arthur Erickson and the CEO of Helio. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly excited to dig in more into this topic because I think it's been one that's caused confusion for many years now. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I can hopefully uh, provide some insight into the, the process for applications here and getting leased, sorry, legally licensed to fly and operate these spray drones. So, Arthur, before we dig into the meat and potatoes of the drone industry, let's talk a little bit about your background and Helio's background and why this is even a topic that's relevant for you and your company. Sure. So my name is Arthur Erickson. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of a company called Helio. Helio is based in Houston, Texas. Uh, well, actually, a town called Richmond, just south of Houston. And we've been around since 2015. I started the company back when I was uh, studying aerospace engineering at UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin, and my 
roommates at the time, who are now my co-founders and, and colleagues in the company, um, we all got together and just decided that we thought the, the ag industry could use uh, some revolutionizing. <laughs> so um, we had the prerequisite skill set and, and knowledge to build out drones, and we thought that would be the perfect tool for, for automating uh, ag and making it more precise and easier for people to uh, do. So that's how the company started. Uh, we were actually actually custom applicators for about three or four years before we started selling the products. So we did that on purpose because we wanted to get that direct experience. We were using prototype drones that we built in-house and designed in-house, uh, going out, servicing uh, corn, soybeans, rice, all the common crops, and getting paid per acre per application. So after, like I said, about three and a half seasons or so of doing that, we felt the product was mature enough to sell it uh, to end users. So now we sell to farmers themselves, but also custom applicators and agribusinesses in the space. So as you do talk drones in the agricultural space, what are the most common uses? Right now, what we see a lot of is input of mid to late season uh inputs, right? So herbicides, fungicides are pretty big. Some foliar feeds, topical types of fertilizers are also very popular. Uh, so is cover crop seeding using the granular spreader attachment to our drones. Uh, a lot of the heavier NPK fertilizing stuff is not popular right now with drones because that typically requires heavier payloads than what drones are efficient for. But most of the pesticide applications that you're thinking of uh, can be done pretty well with drones. And I think there's been a lot of confusion about some of those applications that you just mentioned, because a couple of years ago, we had the FAA or Federal Aviation Association come out with certain guidelines about who can spray drone with drones, who can fly drones, and all sorts of red tape as to where you can fly and whatnot. But Give us a high-level overview about some of the history of where where we've been and where we're at today when it comes to using drones to spray on your operation. Yeah, so drones, uh, the FAA exists for a reason, right? I'll come right out and say that first. And this is an important space to regulate because we are talking about flying machinery that is applying potentially dangerous chemicals uh, or damaging chemicals if they're not used properly. So that's what the FAA exists for in, in this space. It's to, to govern uh, who and how these machines can be utilized so they're used in a safe and effective way. Now, what happened was drones hit the scene, let's say the first spray drones um, hit the scene right around the time we started selling them. So only four or five years ago. So it's been a very recent uh, advent of technology here. And the FAA had no choice but to take old structures and try to fit the, the square peg into a round hole, right? These drones, they, they aren't quite airplanes, but they're not quite, quite tractors. So the FAA took up the old airplane applicator stuff and just tried to cram the drones into it. And they didn't have a lot of time. Um, so they, they did their best, but there were still a lot of inefficiencies in that process. Now, what the FAA has done recently, which we're really excited about, is they finally have had time over the past five years or so to analyze the key differences in, ter in terms of you know, risk management, safety, and, and how you operate these drones, and how that can allow for a, a different, more streamlined application process. So now instead of going through eight, nine, or even 12-month process to become a licensed applicator like the, the pilots have to, the main aviators, airplane and helicopter pilots, 
Now for drones, uh, according to recent changes they made just last month, this process should only take, let's say, 45 to 60 days is what we're uh, thinking here. But it is very new, so that's not 100% confirmed yet. But it looks like it's going to be a, a two-month or so process as opposed to a 12-month process. Well, that's uh, a sounds like a win in the favor of those looking to get licensed. Where did the push for shortening up or the clarification come from? Was this uh, united legislation on the front, or how did that process evolve? Yeah, this is coming down directly from the FAA themselves. So they've just been gathering data from their uh, local FISDO offices and flight standards district offices throughout the country. Uh, these local offices have been the ones that have been certifying pilots in their individual states to to use these drones under the, the traditional laws. So they ended up doing just like a cross-agency study, I guess you would call it, um, deciding where the pain points were, deciding what was necessary, what wasn't. And the FAA themselves said, hey, here are the new uh, changes to the, the, the FAA program. Um, so I don't think this required any new legislation outside of the FAA, if that's what you're asking. This was all an internal thing. It, they have the uh, authority, I suppose, to, to govern how they're actually giving out these licenses within the existing framework. Arthur, one of the biggest questions I think I hear from farmers a lot of times, and I'm sure with this new framework, things may have changed, but the biggest question mark has always been, can I as a farmer spray my own fields with my own product, or do I need a license to be able to fly the drone just on my own property? Have we gotten any more clarity around that specific topic? Yeah, that is an interesting question. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not a lawyer. Uh, my understanding from having worked with the FAA almost daily for the past eight years or so is that there's two things that constitute uh, needing this license. A, if you're doing commercial activity. Uh, so unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to look at it, if you're spraying your own farm, that still counts as commercial activity because that those, those are crops that you're raising to sell and make money off of. So even though it's your farm, your crops, that's still commercial activity. So that's the first trigger. Now, if you're spraying for commercial activity and a restricted use pesticide, that's when you need this part 137 license. So if you are only spraying a non-restricted use pesticide, which is not defined as an economic poison in the, by the writing of the FAA, then you technically don't need this license. Now, where it gets like confusing, and I don't have the answer is, you know, what can you argue is and isn't an economic poison? So I know for sure restricted use pesticides that are labeled as such by the EPA are economic poisons. Now, there's some other stuff like certain fungicides and, and other products that don't have clear labeling uh, in that category. And so that's, that's kind of user beware. That's up to interpretation, whether or not what you're spraying is is a restricted use pesticide or not. That's my that's the the answer I have for now. <laughs> Maybe not a perfect answer. Well, it sounds like there's still a lot to be explored and learned, especially as uh, we see things put together. What if our listeners? are interested in getting started or have been looking for ways to jump into this, what do you suggest are the best first steps? Well, the first thing I would do is go on Google and just do as much internal or self homework as possible. Because at the end of the day, like you shouldn't just listen to what someone's telling you, like an inter interview, like, like me right now, um, you got to 
read, hear from different sources. So do some research. Uh, the first thing in terms of like licensing that you're actually going to get that you need regardless, regardless of whether or not you're using a camera drone or like a survey drone or a spray drone, you're going to need your part 107, 107. That's your small UAS commercial pilot license. So that's a relatively easy license to get. Uh, you, well, I say relatively easy. You do need a study. It's a 60-question test that you take. I think it's online now. Ever since COVID, they, they moved in an, an online testing process. And you need to study uh, basic drone procedures. Uh, you need to understand air maps. So you need to understand what Class C airspace is and Class D airspace. And you need to be able to identify those on, uh, on a map. Um, so you go take this test. You get your license. And then from there, you can go get your other licenses. So I can dive into those now if you think that it's a good time. Um, but there's two other things. So there's the 137, which we just talked about, which thankfully much faster now that the FAA has made the recent changes. And then there's your pesticide applicators license. So you get that on a state level. Uh, and there is reciprocity between states. Uh, but that state pesticide applicator license uh, is also something that you test for. So there's those three things that you need, the 107, the 137, and the, the state pesticide applicator license. So Arthur, as you look at, you know, other things coming down the pipeline, obviously getting a shift in the way that the FAA governs drone application is a great move in the right direction. But as far as other legislation, standards, guidelines, or even updates coming to the drone industry. What are the things that you're watching as this technology continues to grow and evolve? Yeah, I think the next stages we're looking at here are further, or I should say, allowing more and more automation. So it, you've probably heard this. There's been restrictions around flying beyond line of sight, for example. And that's something that you have to specifically uh, waive or exempt from. Um, basically, you need to prove to the FAA, FAA, hey, my drone has capabilities to fly and handle itself safely, even when I'm not directly seeing it as a pilot. So we're, we're looking to get more and more uh, freedoms in that uh, arena. But there's also stuff like, okay, eventually, once these drones do reach a level of automation where in between flights, there's a machine that's automatically refilling them and recharging them, we need to be able to to legally leave the drone so it can go do that automated task all day. So the FAA is still requiring that a pilot be present on the scene. But if this drone is basically working like a Roomba, where it's going to come back and recharge itself and just go on and just it, it finish the, the, the total amount of work and however long it takes, then it, it defeats the purpose if a person has to be out there standing there watching it, right? So that's the stuff that we're looking forward to, uh, convincing the FAA, because our system's reliable and robust, that the person doesn't have to be part of the equation. And that's the, the ultimate end goal. That's great. So for our listeners, if they want to follow along with what Helio's got going on or you, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Yeah, so that would be our website, which is hylio.com, helio.com, but looks like it's pronounced Hylio because that's how it's spelled, hylio.com. We have a lot of good content on there. We're constantly updating it. So there's there's like a new section where we'll post stuff that's, that's upcoming or new changes. Uh, we also have socials. So you got Instagram, Facebook, a lot of updates on there as well. So good resources to check out if you're interested in spray drones in general, uh, not even necessarily buying from us, but just learning more about the industry. We have a lot of uh, great free accessible resources on there. Well, thanks again so much for hanging out with us today and letting us pick your brain. 
yeah, thank you as well. Well, there you go. What a great Tech Tuesday. Thanks for lining that up, Delaney. Kind of fun to learn about what's progressing in that nature of technology for agriculture. Listeners, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for sending us ideas like this one. If you've got more, find us on social media. But for today, what do you say, Delaney? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 